I'd like to start a little differently than I normally do this morning. Um, I want to just jump right into it, so kind of want you to take a deep breath. And, uh, and the way I want to begin this morning is by just sharing with you um, kind of the gospel story um, by way of a creed. Like if, if uh, so we don't confess any particular creed on a regular basis, but I, what I'd like to do is just share with you the gospel and kind of a, a form of belief statement. And um, <clears throat> so here we go. Ready? Uh, we believe in a God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. Um, we believe that this God, um, at creation, made mankind the crowning glory of the creation, so that man and woman are the triumphal sixth-day event, that man and woman were made in the image of God, that we were uh, given the earth as our dominion. We were instructed to subdue the earth and to lord over the earth and to multiply and fill the earth. We believe that everything in the world that God made was good and that there was no evil in it and that evil entered the world through mankind, through man's decision to worship themselves rather than to worship the Lord, that it was through the choice and the subsequent sin of Adam and Eve that sin entered into the world, not out of God's proactive design. Since then, sin has been in the world. We're born in sin. Um, Sin and brokenness are part of our lives. And that is an inheritance we share with one another, but it's not a created inheritance of the six days. It's something that mankind brought to the creation on their own. We believe that one of the, the, the... the consequences of sin are, are at least twofold. The first is, is that we are separated from God as far as our fellowship goes. That now there is some rift between the fellowship that we enjoy with God the Father. There's some space between man and God that there was not originally. It, uh, originally there was perfect union and fellowship between God and man. That's the first thing we believe. And we believe that secondarily that death is the outflowing of the sin in our lives. And so all of us who in our imperfect flesh, do the things which are contrary to God's will, we will suffer death because of that. And that, those are two of, of the many consequences of sin, but two of the primary ones. We believe that we're helpless on our own of, develop, of finding a way out of this predicament, but that God, out of His love for us, has paved the path, that the Lord has kind of blazed a trail of redemption, that in the mind of God and out of the love of God, He decided, out of the outflowing of His love for us, to create a way to bring man and God back into right fellowship with one another. And so it's through the effort of God that our hope for a union with the Father has come. And the way that God has done that is through giving us His Son. God gave us His Son who made Himself manifest on this earth. Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. He walked this earth as a man. He did great signs and wonders. He was tempted yet did not sin. He lived a perfect life on this earth. And mankind crucified Jesus Christ. And so Christ was killed by man and he was killed for man. And he went to the cross and on the cross he bore the weight of all of mankind's sins to the great satisfaction of God the Father. So that on the third day, on the morning of the third day at first light, Jesus Christ was resurrected by the Father to new life. And that even right now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And one day in the fullness of time 
Jesus will return and he will judge all of mankind, both the living and the dead, and bring everything and put it in its place. We believe that the gift of salvation has been made available to all people through faith. That by us investing and dedicating our trust and faith in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that that satisfies God and that, and that we can once again be reunited with the Father in, in oneness at the end of time. But it's through that faith. And this faith is, is, is more substantive than a cognitive assent. It has to do with a humble recognition of our predicament, a humble recognition of our inability, our, our, our ineffectualness at maintaining our own, getting our own righteousness down, and it's a reorientation towards God for salvation. We confess our complete dependence upon the saving work and sacrifice of Jesus Christ for salvation. Now that's, a, that's the gospel, about the gospel. Um, we're in a time where um, you've got to be very careful when you share the gospel. I mean, when it's shared like that, people listen with keen minds. Many of you here are listening. And, and, and it's, it's, some of us are so gospel literate that when something like that is said, our minds are prone to nuance or listen and say, oh, is that exactly right? Because we have become, as a church, as a church, I'm not saying you personally, but as a church, the church has become very gospel literate. And uh, during different epochs of the church, different areas of the gospel have needed um, significant fine-tuning. So when you read the Nicene Creed, I chose not to read the Apostolic or the Nicene Creed today because I felt like the degree of gospel clarity that it's addressing was for an issue of that time and not this one. So when you read the Nicene Creed, there seems to be a preeminent concern with defining the person and substance of Jesus Christ. Like, who is Christ in relation to the Father? And, who, and from what does the Spirit proceed? Does it come from Jesus? Does it come from God and the Father? Those were issues. Those were issues that were really being wrestled with back then. And so there needed to be a great degree of clarity as to exactly um, how to say that perfectly right. There were people that almost went to the stake over one letter in a Greek word when these things were being talked about. Is Jesus of the same essence or is, every li- or is he of like essence? This was intensely debated among the church. And then you have um, creeds or ideas that have come out of the Reformation period. Um, a lot of the, what you would, the church is called the solas, sola scriptura, sola fide. These ideas, they've surfaced in the 1500s to kind of provide great gospel clarity as to how is one saved? Is one saved through faith and works? And we've said no. We are, one is saved by faith and not by works. Is, is one guided by the traditions of the church and by the authority of Scripture? We've said no, that the authority of Scripture stands on its own with the work of the Spirit in concert with the efforts of the church to interpret the will of God. That, that there's been times in the church where there's been different sources of gospel clarity. I don't know what ours is. I am inclined to think that we are entering a time of great gospel illiteracy. So just if you know the gospel, that may be clear enough. But if you think about it, the gospel 
or the good news of Jesus Christ, right? What the church calls the gospel, this path to salvation, or this confession of our, our broken relationship with God and our need for Him to heal it, that gospel it really has nothing to do with you or me in the sense that you and I don't add to it, we don't detract from it, we can't tweak it or change it. It just is. It just is. The only contribution we have is our response to the gospel. What do we do once knowing the truth of God? Do we respond the right way or do we respond the wrong way? And what I want to do this morning is just to call out and I, something uh, that I think sometimes gets placed in the wrong order, and that is mistaking knowing the gospel for an effective response to the gospel. Let me say that again. I don't, I don't, I'm concerned sometimes in the church that we can know the gospel with great clarity, know all the precepts and terms and who, what comes first and, and what's important. We can know all of that in all of its right order, but we mistake knowing that and even mentally assenting to it as an effective response to the gospel. And what I want to show this morning through the life of Mary is that there's a much different kind of response that the Lord desires. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to spend some time working through a story that you just saw very well acted out behind me. And as you're turning there to Luke chapter 1, what you're going to see is someone who, in my opinion, does not have very good gospel clarity. I'm going to make the case or suggest that Mary doesn't know, with the same degree of clarity that you and I know, she doesn't know what's going on. She knows she's part of something big. She knows that God's involved in it. She knows that there's redemptive themes that are there, but I, I would suspect that at the announcement by the angel Gabriel to Mary, that she did not have in her mind the fullness of what Jesus Christ meant. I don't think she understood that he was going to be crucified when Gabriel came to her. I don't think she understood that he'd be resurrected on the third day. I don't think that she, in like under her breath, was like, finally, substitutionary atonement. I, I just don't think that was happening. I don't think that kind of clarity was going on. And so what I want to do is I want to read and I want to show you someone who has some understanding of the gospel. And by the way, I don't want to belittle the importance of the gospel. That's not all what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to highlight the importance of our response to the gospel this morning. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say don't mistake your answer knowing what the gospel is for being inside of it. Because what you're going to see today is, is Mary may have had a, a rough or hazy understanding of what God was doing, but she has a biblically perfect response. And that's what I want to encourage us to model today. Let's look, let's look here. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, I'm going to read 26 to 38 real quickly, and then we'll, we'll, we'll just see kind of how the hazy gospel was, was understood um, in her time. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Now in this text, what, let's look and examine what is the expectation or what might Mary's expectation have been for what's about to unfold. This, this is the evidence we're given. The first is she's going to be with the son and she's going to name the son Jesus. Jesus is the Greek pronunciation of a Hebrew or Aramaic name, Yeshua or Joshua, which means God saves. And so right there in that name is, is the understanding or, or the anticipation of some kind of salvation. Some kind of salvation. It's the first thing we know. The second thing we know is that he's going to be called the Son of the Most High God. And so there's some, certainly some kind of holy expectation or, or connotation to that. That is, that's in there, though, though many people were called sons of God. We, in some way, are sons and daughters of God. So it isn't as though that seals the deal. No one could argue categorically from this verse that this is saying that Jesus Christ is the biological Son of God. This phrase has been used in various places in Scripture. But something is special about that. He's going, to be, he's going to sit on the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will never end. Now these, these ideas, the name Yeshua, the, the, the idea of sitting on the throne of his father David, of being a son of the Most High God, these are Old Testament themes that are converging all together now. That, that in the story of the Old Testament, and, and the story of the Hebrew people, these were coming alive and arising and giving certain expectations the Hebrew people had about what God was going to do. They were waiting for a Savior. They were waiting for a Messiah. And, and these are the themes that kind of were converging into the person of Jesus Christ. But they still, they were not tied up very tightly. There still is a great darkness over what the clarity of the gospel is going to be. Hebrews 1 says this, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at, ver- at certain times and in various forms. That's what this is. This is kind of a convergence of the various forms of God's redemptive story that have been told at certain times throughout history. But now it's converging on Jesus. And I'm, I just am expressing this because what I want you to see is this is... 
It's around these ideas that Mary was trying to understand what is God doing. And it's not nearly as clear as what you and I have. I mean, we have, we have really comfortable doctrine to understand. We can kind of work this stuff out. I mean, there's books and books. There's libraries of books that will split hairs on these issues all day long. And, and, and she's here with, he's going to be in the line of David, sitting on the throne. His name is God Saves. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever, and he's the son of the Most High. But I want you to look at her response. Because I think she has it right. I think there's, God has grace as far as how clear we understand the gospel. Well, I say this very carefully. I think God is full of mercy on, our, on all the details, on having all the right answers, so long as our posture before him is appropriate. And I just, this morning, I want to encourage the church to have the right one in the right place. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to read you Mary's song. This is her, this is the Magnificat of Scripture. I'm going to read it to you. I want you to read this almost as her response, as her response to the good news of the Lord, her response to what God's going to do in her life. And I want you to just listen to what surrounds her faith, what surrounds it and what's going on all around it. You know, we say faith alone. We say faith alone all the time. That phrase was coined by the church when it was fighting against salvation by works or salvation by faith. No one ever intended to say faith is absolutely by itself. And so what I want you to listen to is the things that surround her faith, particularly the humility that's in her faith. Let me read and, 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 we'll, and we'll process together. This is what Mary says. My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. This is the posture of Mary. And, and, and I, I kind of like to, this song sings to me in three major verses. This first verse, which is about verses 46 to 49, is an extremely personal verse. Do, do you see how personal it is? My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit praises the God, my Savior. He's seen my humble estate, is what she says. And he's done great things for me. And, and because of his goodness to me, she says, the world will call me blessed. Nations will call me blessed. Generations will call me blessed. Do you see how personal that is? It's, it's, it's not selfishly personal. It's intimately personal. 
She's saying at the good news that's been brought to her, the great tidings from the angel, that her soul in the deepest, most inmost place is glorifying God. The way it's even written, it's written almost as though she's passively observing what her soul is doing. Do you see that? She's not saying, I praise the Lord. It's not active like that. It's almost as she's observing that her soul is alive for God. Is your soul alive? If you know the gospel and you think you're inside the blessing of the gospel, some point, some point in your life, your soul must at some point say, I have to glorify the Lord. Your spirit and must at some point had to praise God, your Savior. That's, that is part of the posture of, of, of a believer is that we would sit before an almighty God and that our soul would glorify the Lord. Now, I'm not saying all the time. I'm not saying in every way that you need to be in this profound place. I don't think that Mary, nine months pregnant on a donkey to Bethlehem, was singing this. I just don't think it. But what I mean to say is, is when, you, when you think about the Lord and all he's done for you, all he's done for you, and you're mindful of your lowly estate, when you're mindful of the fact that there's no good reason why God should have come to you, you have nothing to contribute. When you think about that, does your soul glorify the Lord? From now on, generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. This great things, you know, I've been thinking about this so much. What has God done for her so far? She hasn't given birth. I'm not even completely sure if she's pregnant yet. The angel tells her this, and then she hurries down to see Elizabeth. You know what I think, it, I think it is? I think when she says, the mighty one has done great things for me, she's expressing the fact that the God of the universe has become personal. I think Mary's, I think Mary's rejoicing the fact that she, who is you know, a nobody, that God, that God has chosen to come into her life and to be personal, and, 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 to, and to make his life a personal reality in her life. I think that's what the Mighty One has done great things for me for, is this, this, this intimate, personal environment that you see in 47, 48, and 49, that, that the Lord is, is her Savior, and that he's been mindful of her humble state, and that now generations will call her blessed because of what he's actually done for her. You see how personal this is? This, if you want to understand, or, or, or pursue, or or be critical, in, inwardly critical of your response before the Lord, I would say this. Do you, do you have, is, what part of you does this? What part of you says, my soul glorifies the Lord? What part of you is cognizant of the humble state of, of, of yourself and, and your need? And the fact that the very fact that God's come to you is a great and mighty blessing. That's the first verse of the song. I think if, the, if there was a chorus... It would be holy as his name. And then the next verse verses of the song, verses 50 to 53, 
it, it expresses, there's an interesting turn that Mary makes now. She starts out very personal. The Lord has done great things for me. My soul glorifies the Lord. And then from 50 to 53, she begins now to express that, these, that what God's done for her is typical of God because it's, it's typical of who God is. So God's done it for her, but what seems to come out of the text is God's done it for her because this is the way that God is. This is, this is how God operates. This is how he thinks. This is, this is, she attributes it to his nature that he's done this thing for her. Watch what she says. She says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. So she says, my soul glorifies the Lord because of all these things he's done for me. And then she says, but his mercy extends to those who fear him. Not those who are Jewish. Not those who are in the tribe of Judah. Not those who are in the line of David. That's not what she's saying. She's saying the mercy of God extends to those who fear God. Do you know what a Greek was called back then? A Greek person who believed in the Jewish ways but would not be circumcised and not become Jewish. He was called a God-fearing person. He was technically outside the Jewish faith, but he feared the Lord. Mary says, his mercy extends to those who fear him. And his mercy extends not just now. It's not a new thing. Mary's saying it's not a new thing in life. She says from generation to generation. So the mercy of God is available through all generations. And the mercy of God is available through the breath of those people who fear him. Do you fear the Lord? And when I say fear the Lord, I don't mean are you tremorously scared of him do you, are you reverent before the Father? Do you respect the Lord? Are you full of awe before what he's done? Do you have this awful sense of what he's done in your life. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Do you have that? If you don't have this, I don't care how well you understand the gospel. Your response to the gospel is critical. Does any part of your soul glorify the Lord? When you understand what God's done for us, is there any part of your soul that fears God? She continues, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. One of the translations says, in their inner imaginations. Do you see what she's saying? She's saying that the, the, the judging eyes of God When God's concerned about if you're in the kingdom or not, his eyesight pierces through and plows deep in to see the most inmost part of who you are. That's what she's saying. She's saying that God is concerned not about your physical posture. God's concerned not about your Sunday posture. God's concerned about the deepest posture of who you are. Is that prideful? Is that arrogant? Is that... Living in fear of the Lord? Because that's where God looks. When God says, what's the posture of this person? Is this person written in the Lamb's book of life? He says, well, has their soul ever glorified me? Do they fear me? And what is is the innermost imaginations of who they are saying about who I am? He's brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And listen to this. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. I don't think, I don't think that Mary's talking about, one person I read said, Mary's suggesting a sociological revolution. That starting now, that, that Jesus has come so that the hungry can eat. Now certainly, certainly when the Spirit moves in the heart of the church, 
The heart of the church sees brokenness and want and need and should be spurned to lean into it and to sacrifice on its behalf because people in need have spirits that are in need. But I think what Mary's saying here, or, or the echo from Scripture, what Scripture's saying is not so much physical hunger, but spiritual hunger. Notice the rich go away empty-handed. That's odd. You know, if the rich go away empty-handed, are they now poor? I think what the Lord's saying is he sees those people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and he feeds that. And those people who have no hunger for righteousness, no thirst for righteousness, because they've satisfied it in other places, they satisfy their appetites through other ideas and other things and, and other idols, that by the time they show up at Scripture, they're full. They're stuffed. They're gorged. So they don't have time to read this. They're, they just have no appetite left. And God is saying here, I'm looking for people who yearn, yearn, to drink from these pages. Who desperately want to know more of who I am. And if they come, I will feed them. That's the second verse of the song. The first is, the Lord, my soul glorifies the Lord for what he's done for me. The second verse is, and he's done this for me because this is who he is. This is just how he is. He would do it for you. Martin Luther said it this way. Martin Luther said, Mary was so humble that if the Lord had decided to come to someone she knew and place Jesus in in her womb, that Mary would have praised the Lord. Praise the Lord that she's blessed. She would have had such a humble demeanor about herself that she would never have said, well, why didn't I get Jesus? That she would have said, oh, yeah, that I see why. I'm just glad to know her. That's what Martin Luther said. That this Lord, this Lord who's so intimate with us, he does the same things with other people. And then there's the third verse, this third and final verse, which is 54 and 55. He's helped his servant Israel, remember to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. What Mary is saying is this, not only has he done this to me, and not only is this his way, but he has, he has methodically been trying to demonstrate this to the earth for 2,000 years. That it isn't just his kindness on a whim. It's God's kindness that has been calculated over two millennia. That God is, that has slowly unfolded the story. That he's working through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on down the generations through the tribe of Judah and the line of David and on through and through the mouths of the prophets. She's saying that, that this is the source of the mercy of God. That God's decided to bridge the gap between God and man. God decided to create a way, and he's done this way through Abraham and his descendants, and she recognizes the mercy there. That he's, not just, he's not just personally gracious to her, and it isn't just the way he is with others. It's the way he's trying to be with mankind. Is, is your response to God like this? I don't, I don't mean... All the time, every day. I mean, when you read this, is this totally alien to you? Because I think, I think in my heart that, that God, God says, ah, she doesn't fully know the gospel. She may not fully understand every detail of the gospel, but she, she has the right posture before me. 
And what I want to encourage you this morning is not, not at all, I'm not at all trying to diminish the gospel. I started with the gospel to be very clear on the importance of those ideas. What I don't want you to do is mistake your understanding of the gospel for the fact that you're right standing before the Lord. You may have the gospel perfectly right. You may be able to teach the gospel. I've been to colleges and universities that people don't even believe in God can teach the gospel. I'm asking, what's your posture before the Lord? That's what you're going to be judged on. That's the only thing you bring. Only, the only thing you contribute here is your response to God, towards God's truth. We're in this season. We're in a season where people have open ears and open hearts. And, and my hope for you, my hope for you at Christmas, in the new year, my hope for you in your life, is that your posture preaches. That people will say, I know they're Christians because of their love. That's what I hope. And I hope when they ask, you have the right answers. I certainly hope you have the right answers. But you have to get them to ask. And that comes through your posture. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. I'm going to close this in a prayer. I'm going to pray over our our orientation towards the Lord. And as I pray, I'm going to read Mary's song one more time, but I'm going to read it backwards. I'm going to start from... You know, for her, she starts, she ends 2,000 years back. She says, I glorify the Lord for what he's done to me today. And she says, it started 2,000 years ago is what she says in her prayer. And today I'm going to start 2,000 years ago with Christ. I'm going to say it's because of what he's doing this, so that he's done something with us even today. So if you'll pray with me, we'll read it one more time. Lord, we recognize your kindness to us in so many ways. Father, we recognize you're worthy of worship Even without your gift of Christ, Lord, you're worthy of worship. Lord, we confess to you that Adam and Eve had good cause to worship you even before they had sinned, Lord, that that simply because you've created us, out of love you've created us, Lord, you are worthy of worship. But on top of that, Lord, you've added so much goodness, Lord. You've added the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, into our life and the gift of your Holy Spirit into our life and and the corporate union of the church into our life, Lord. And so for that, we are abundantly thankful and grateful. Lord, we pray this Christmas season, as we speak of the advent of Christ, we might understand and appreciate the significance of his coming in our hearts, Lord, that we might adopt a humble posture like Mary does, to appreciate that we are not deserving of Jesus Christ, nor was man even asking for Jesus Christ until you began to act. Father, we thank you for your gift. We thank you that you have helped your servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as you said to our fathers. You have filled the hungry with good things, but you've sent the rich away empty. You've brought down the rulers from their thrones, but have lifted up the humble. You have performed mighty deeds with your arm. You've scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Your mercy extends to those who fear you from generation to generation. 
My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Amen.